0: If you would, open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 1 this morning. It's not my main text, but we need to begin here this morning. Romans 1 and beginning at verse 8. I want to read to uh, introduce the lesson we will focus on in Philippians this morning. Romans 1, 8 to 15. And this is as inspired by the Holy Spirit, written by the hand of Paul. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I want you to know, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under... Obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul was eager to come to the church at Rome. Imagine imagine what it would be like if the Apostle Paul wrote that to us. And then imagine if the Apostle Paul actually shows up And he begins to minister here in Ada, in this congregation and throughout this community. It's amazing to think about that, isn't it? How do you think that he would be received here? I I hope he would be received joyfully. I think he would, but I think that that may only last for a while. Just looking at the Apostle Paul's track record, that seems to be the case, some churches obviously would rejoice that this great apostle has come with the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ talking about his life that was lived for us in obedience to God's law his death that was given up for us as a an appeasing sacrifice in our place upon the cross and his glorious resurrection that attested to his holiness and his deity and our justification Paul would have preached that and we would be glad to hear that but yet as Paul's powerful message and reputation began to proceed throughout this community, there would be some who would not be rejoicing. They would be envying him. They would be envying him and they would be glad if he would just leave. Yet he would be glad if they would just preach Christ. That was what he was concerned with. Envy didn't enter into his heart. The glory of Jesus drove the Apostle Paul into his mission and his ministry. That's what Paul's writing about when we come to the book of Philippians this morning. If you would, turn with me to Philippians chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 12 in a moment. Paul's writing to the Philippians about the time that he is imprisoned there in Rome. He had finally arrived at Rome. He had been preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and then was arrested for defending Jesus, for defending the truth of the gospel. Paul went there to Rome to preach and to edify, to evangelize and edify, to edify the church that was already established. But it's obvious that it didn't take long for envy to rise up in the midst of this ministry. And that's what Paul is Telling the Philippians about We have this account of what happened after Paul had arrived and even been in prison for preaching there in Rome. We we see in this letter in Philippians 1, 12-18a, we see an account of what was going on and how Paul responded. Paul is going to illustrate in this text for us a gospel-advancing response to rivals. A gospel-advancing response response to rivals. We want we want our responses not to advance our cause or our life or our personal ministry. We want it, we want it to advance Christ's ministry. That's what Paul's doing. Paul never defends himself in this. It's amazing. He had a right to. He did that in Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. He defends his apostleship, but not here. Here he's more concerned about the advancement of the gospel while he is Suffering, even if it's his rivals that are doing it. Look what it says, verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard, that's the Roman guard, and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, in reference to verse 14, some, in reference to the brothers in verse 14, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. But others, again referring to the some in verse 14, others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the Gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or for false reasons, or in truth, in purity, Christ is proclaimed. And in that... I rejoice. Paul is, is pleased that the gospel is being proclaimed even if people are trying to slander him to do it. Even to hurt him. He doesn't like their motives. He doesn't endorse their motives. He exposes those motives here in this text. But he says they got the gospel right. God is at work in spite of their rivalry and their selfish ambition God will triumph through the gospel even over our rivals Paul reveals in this text that there are two groups two groups of Christian ministers in Rome Paul's response to these two groups should should teach the Philippians and should teach us a very important lesson it should teach us that selfishness still resides in the church Indwelling sin becomes manifest when others are promoted many times. He's teaching them that selfishness is in the church, and it must be acknowledged, it must be discerned, and it must be answered. And in such a way that would advance the gospel. That's, that's the outline this morning. In Philippians 1:15 to 15-18a, eh, Paul teaches us that number one, a gospel-advancing response to rivals begins with acknowledging the reality of rivalry in verse 15. Number two, a gospel-advancing response to rivals begins with discerning the root of our ministry or what's at the, the root, what's, what's at the bottom of our ministry, what's driving it, what's it springing up from in verses 16 to 17. And thirdly, Paul teaches that a gospel advancing response to rivals begins with answering rivalry with humility as he does in verse 18a. Now, when I read the text, maybe I'm strange when I read text, but I I read these texts and I, I try to figure out where I fit at in this text. I know where I'd like to fit at in the text. I would like to be in verse 18. I would like to think that I am like Paul and that when I see others attacking me personally, attacking our ministry, but they're getting the gospel right, I would like to think that I would be like him and say, what then? I don't care what they do to me. I don't care what they say about me. I'm just happy they preach Christ. But as I assess my own heart, I don't fit into verse 18. So where do you think you fit at in this passage? Who do you relate to in this text the most? Do you think you maybe relate to the, uh, the group that that serves Jesus out of pure motives, out of love and goodwill, or maybe maybe you, you think probably like me that you might fit into the third category that's listed here. You may manifest what the former manifests that's mentioned in verse 17. You you may you may manifest selfishness and envy and rivalry in your own heart many times when others are prospering in ministry or others are advancing in their spiritual growth or others are being praised as they serve the church and i'm going to be honest i'm i'm in that category i fight that i i'm the one who who needs christ the most i'm in that category and the only way I can fight envy and rivalry and selfish ambition in ministry or in the Christian walk is to look to Christ who defeated it for me. He humbled Himself and became a servant. To die. Not to be praised as He walked the earth, but to be praised forever in glory because of His humility. I need His humility. And by His grace, He has imputed that to me and it is credited to my account. And I am praising Him for that. But I want to walk in the light of that truth. And I think that's what Paul is wanting the Philippians to do. This is not a rebuke to the Philippians. It's not a rebuke to the a direct rebuke to the former who proclaimed Christ out of rivalry. It's not even written to them. It's not written to the Roman men, believers, brothers who are sinning. It's written to those who apparently aren't sinning, but have that tendency within them to sin in this like manner. And so in that sense, I think it's written to us we're all in this category we have a tendency to be envious of others when they're growing and prospering and doing well and being praised we we need to acknowledge that then we need to discern where that comes from and then we need to discern how it manifests itself and then we need to answer that issue of the heart with humility like paul does paul paul serves to give us an example of the gospel at work here in this text I will not do it justice, but I will try my best to to bring some truths out of this text that will hopefully encourage you this morning to pursue humility, to discern your sin, and to acknowledge that to God, to confess it, and find grace in Christ's work that covered it. Paul's response to his rivals helped to advance the gospel, did it not? It, it, It didn't portray Paul as as weak and as insignificant no he actually has this magnanimous attitude toward these men as if you know whatever they do to me doesn't matter as long as God works through them to proclaim who Jesus Christ is that's the matter they can abuse me they can ridicule me but I just want to see Jesus exalted Paul doesn't defend himself in this text. Let's, let's begin to look at what he does do, though. And in, in the very first part, in verse 15, a gospel-advancing response to rivals is seen by acknowledging the reality of rivalry. That's what he does here in verse 15. He says, some, in reference to verse 14, it, it flows directly from verse 14. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. Envy and rivalry, those are things that are, are motivated by self-exaltation, self-preservation. Goodwill is, is motivated by Christ exaltation and the good of others, agape, pure motives. But he is referring to two groups of believers here. Now, I I know this is sometimes a, a difficult text because some people think, well, how could these men in verse 17 possibly be true ministers of the gospel? Well, ask yourself this. Do you ever express envy or selfish ambition as a believer in Jesus Christ? Well, pastors aren't exempt. I mean, think about it. Paul shows up, he's preaching. He has got this massive reputation, a massive following. He doesn't want either of those. That's just what God gave him. He had to bear the burden of it. That's why God gave him a thorn in the flesh to keep him humble. Yet, Paul shows up and he's preaching and he just wanted to serve Jesus and people are, are coming back to your church saying, man, I heard Paul preach this sermon. It was amazing. He talked about being justified by faith in Christ alone. He talked about the atoning work of Jesus because Jesus came into this This planet, he came to this planet like a baby, like a man. He came and he lived like us. He died our death. He lived our life. He brought us eternal life through his sacrifice. And they're just going on and on and on about Paul. His messages are amazing. He's not much to look at, but man, he can preach. Pastors are hearing that. And I'm going to tell you what it feels like from a pastor's side, okay? Doggone you, Paul. These are my people. That's the flesh. And we have to admit that. We have to acknowledge this issue. If we don't acknowledge it, we can't repent of it. These are really Christ's people. And Paul knew that. And I think this text is sort of a, a wake-up call for the Philippians and a wake-up call for us, that envy is in us. It's in our flesh. But both these groups referred to here flow out of verse 14 both these groups consist of true christian ministers true christian believers brothers in christ there are many reasons i know that one because of what i just expressed because that is the testimony of every one of us here it's possible for us to be envious as christians envious of the spiritual growth of others the advancement of their ministries their name their popularity their praise But that's not the only reason I believe that this is referring to two groups of Christian ministers. I also believe it because Paul, the apostle, would never endorse rivals and rejoice over them if they had been false teachers. If they had been false converts or false believers, he would have never blessed their ministry by saying, look at these guys, I rejoice in what they're doing. He never did that and he never would. If these men would have been Judaizers or some other kind of heretics, that taught that man is saved by trusting in Jesus plus circumcision or trusting in Jesus plus the law or trusting in Jesus plus a ritual or a human work or trusting in Jesus plus your goodness, Paul would have not rejoiced. He would have rebuked. It's very clear that these men, he says, preach Christ. And the way the, the, the term is used in the Greek here, it actually means to preach Christ with authority as one who has been authorized to do it. A pastor, a teacher. An elder it's it's when when paul says they preach christ that's paul's way of saying that he endorses this message not their motives but their message paul never ever ever in scripture rejoiced over false brothers or false doctrines he always rebuked them and he did so firmly and to their face let's look at a couple of examples of that turn with me to galatians to see the clearest examples of how Paul would have responded to them if they had not been preaching Christ correctly. (laughs) Paul was not afraid of confrontation. He was no coward. He was strong when it came to error. So I don't believe he would ever call these men in verse 15 of Philippians, brothers, unless they were preaching the right gospel. Because those who didn't heard this in chapter 1 verse 6, as Paul is correcting the, the Galatians, he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, a different euangelion, a different good news message. That's really not good news at all, that's what he's going to say. Verse 7, not, not that there is another one, not that there's another gospel, but there are some who trouble you. That's the false teacher some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ, the one and only message about God's forgiveness and grace through the sacrifice of his son. They want to distort that by adding human works to it. That's what he's going to say in the rest of Galatians. But then he goes on to say this. Let me just be real clear about my view of false teachers. Verse 8. But even if we, or an angelos, a messenger from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be damned. That's the word anathema, accursed, separated from God for eternity. And he repeats it. He says the same thing in verse 9. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone, anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Okay, Paul doesn't beat around the bush. You preach the wrong gospel, you're cursed. You're not in the camp. You're outside the camp. Now, look with me in chapter 2. You see him go further with this and explain even more about how he would never endorse a false brother. In chapter 2, verse 4, it says, yet because of, notice what he does, he calls them out. He calls them false brothers. Because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out your freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that you or so that they may or might bring us into slavery to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you now he says look some guys came in those guys that are accursed. they came in they brought in another message another gospel They brought it in, they they slipped in unaware, if you will, to sneak in and spy out our liberty in Christ, our freedom in Christ. And they begin to attach to that Judaistic ideas. Circumcision will make you a better Christian. This kind of Old Testament law will make you a better believer, a stronger Christian. He says to them, we didn't even put up with them for an hour. We didn't even put up with them for a moment. So that the truth of the gospel would be preserved. So so Paul doesn't mind calling these guys out. He doesn't mind calling them accursed. He doesn't mind calling them false brothers. So Paul would not hesitate to do that in Philippians either. Now look further down in chapter 2 of Galatians. He's not even afraid to call out his own brother if he is in error. He says, but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter, who Cephas is, Peter, he said this before all of them, he says, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Wow. Okay, so if the Philippians received that letter and they think that Paul's talking about false brothers or even erring brothers, they would be mistaken. Because Paul doesn't mind to call out those who are in error on whichever side of the fence they're on. Peter wasn't teaching false doctrine, but Peter was living out false doctrine. And Paul says, I I need to stop him. I'll do it to his face. He's doing it publicly. I'll stop him publicly. So Paul's not afraid of calling out those who are in error. That's my point. Even go back with me to Philippians chapter 3. Even in Philippians, he does get to a group of people that are possibly influencing the Philippians, and he calls them out, and he uses very strong language to expose them for what they really are. So he wouldn't hesitate to do this in verse 15 if they were in this category but he didn't mention these false teachers and these people who are in error until this point here, in chapter three, verse two. He says, "Look, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those," he says, "who mutilate the flesh." These are these are some form of false teachers that have infiltrated this area and came in, maybe possibly teaching this Judaistic idea or the syncretistic idea of adding some kind of Old Testament ritual or right to christianity he says look out for them not only are they bad but they're like what we as jews used to call dogs they're defiled they're evildoers who mutilate the flesh thinking that that will bring about sanctification so again i think that's one of the other arguments for philippians 1:15 being not about two opposing groups but two groups of believers who are living out their christian walk in a desperate need of God's grace. Both groups. Go with me back to Philippians 1, 15. I think Paul is simply preparing not only the Philippians, but us as a church to to face the reality of what it's like to live in a fallen world, even in the church. We need to face the reality that in a fallen world, there are people with selfish motives. Christians who express even their devotion to Christ with underlying selfish motives motives now god alone knows the heart but here in this text we obviously see that by the illumination of the spirit paul gets to expose what's in the heart and i think there were manifest acts that exposed these men also i think it was seen by their actions and paul just simply discerns that but here he's he's first wanting the philippians to to know look the church isn't a pretend world it's a world full of forgiven sinners And you need to be focused on what's most important, not on protecting yourself, not on defending your position, but exalting Christ through preaching the gospel. I think that when Paul does this, I think he calls us in one sense to acknowledge that sin that's possibly in our flesh and cause us to examine our hearts and to confess our selfishness before God as we come to minister in the church. When you come to serve examine your motives, examine your root. What's driving this? What's calling you out? Do you want to be praised by people? And if you see that in your heart, acknowledge it before God. Confess it and turn from that. And God will, by His grace, acknowledge you one day, on that day, when He says, well done, my good and faithful servant. So so seek to exalt Him, not to exalt self. Paul, Paul gives us many warnings against selfishness in the New Testament. God has given us those, actually, through the Apostle Paul. If you turn with me to Romans, you see that it only makes sense that this is possible because there are rebukes against selfishness in the New Testament written to Christians. In Romans 13, 13, it says, Let us walk properly as in the daytime. And this is, this is a pretty direct corrective here. Look what he goes on to say, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. He says, these are obvious temptations that rise up in us because of what we lived in in the past. You put those off when you died with Christ at the cross. Now, remember what Christ has accomplished, what He has atoned for. You put that on, and you won't make provisions for these other things. You'll put them to death with Christ. But jealousy, envy is listed in that category. So I know that it's possible for Christians to be troubled by this sin. I think that's why Paul is, again, writing this in Philippians 1.15. It's it's an obvious plague that still resides in our flesh. You understand, we are saved, being saved, will be saved. It's it's positional, it's progressive, and it's final one day in glory. But in the meantime, we are still in this fallen body, this body of flesh, this, this body of death, Paul would call it. And it still tries to rise up against the Spirit, still tries to seek preeminence. It doesn't want Christ on the throne. That's why the heart needs to be conformed to the image of Christ through the Word so that it will fight against the flesh by remembering what Christ has accomplished to keep the flesh in check. Now, I also know from experience that Philippians 1.15 is talking about the possibility of two factions, of one group, rather, Christians who are basically split in their motives about how they do their ministry. I know that's possible. I've seen it happen. I have experienced it. I have witnessed it. I've witnessed Christian ministers act the way that Paul says these men acted. Not too long ago, about a year or so ago, I watched and listened to two prominent evangelical pastors on a panel being asked questions by other pastors about their ministry and why they choose to beam their sermons down to their satellite locations all over the United States rather than helping those local pastors stand up and preach in the pulpits and guide those people. And as these two prominent pastors were asked about, why why are you robbing the church of the gifts that God has given them in the local pastors? Why aren't you letting them preach? Why do you... Why do you feel the necessity to beam your face, if you will, into thousands of locations or hundreds of locations instead of letting the local congregation rise up through the preaching and teaching of their local pastors? The answer is disgraceful. The answer they gave was this. Until those local pastors can preach better than me, they're not taking the pulpit. And that means that those men who said that, who I do believe are saved, they express this very thing that Paul is rebuking here in a a secondary way in Philippians to 18 And it also expresses that those men will never let anyone preach in those pulpits because they will always be afraid that if a guy preaches in the pulpit, he's going to do better than him. And people won't listen to him any longer. And that's the danger of envy. It is very deceptive. It is very very easily dismissed as, well, I'm the most qualified. In reality, it's, I want to be exalted. I preach better so they'll understand the gospel better, right? So that makes sense. I should be the main speaker at those locations. That's their justification. I think what Paul's wanting us to understand, I think what God wants us to understand through the Apostle Paul this morning is that the the enemy is within Paul was concerned with Christ exaltation. These men and the men I just described are concerned with self exaltation. And I think that Paul is wanting the Philippians to understand that there's this war that's going on all the time with rivals and they're not outside of us, they're in us. See, Paul could have been jealous of these men. Think about it. He's locked up when they're writing. When he's writing this, he's he's telling about this account of men who are doing what he wants to do, what he lives to do, and he can't do. And those men are hoping that it will actually cause Paul great pain because they are free and he's locked up. But instead, Paul is the one who is free while those men are locked up in their jealousy. Paul is free to rejoice and exalt Christ. He's not looking to make a name for himself. And church, we we need to really keep that in our hearts. We need to keep that in our minds. We are Not here to make a name for ourselves. We are here to make a name for Christ Jesus. He is the king of the church. He is the king of our hearts. He is to be exalted above all others. Pastors will come and go, and some need to, right? But God, in His grace, sends His Son, and He never departs from His church. He's faithful. He is never envious. He is always full of agape toward those who are in need of His service. So, though men stumble, like I described, those men, from my own experience of watching them on on the internet and listening to their sermons, though they stumble, though they fall, we need to recognize that God will conquer even those envious men's hearts and work in spite of them. That's what He does here in Rome, as Paul writes to the Philippians. We just need to make sure that we're willing to acknowledge that this this sin is, is in us. It is in our flesh. And it needs to be repented of continually. In verse 15, again Paul acknowledges the reality of rivalry and he acknowledges loyalty in that text as well. He does say, look, there are, there are these two groups. One is loyal to the Gospel. Loyal to me. They, they long to labor with me. They long to join up with me, though it could cost them everything. But there are are others who rejoice over my suffering. And in reality, he's saying, look, that's that's possible for all of us. If good and faithful men of God who probably rejoiced when, when Paul first arrived at Rome, if they can develop this kind of rivalry and envy, this can happen to any of us. That's why the Scriptures tell us so often to put these things to death by looking To Christ who atoned for our envy and our jealousy. Again, in the context of this this letter, Paul's not writing to those who are guilty of this sin in particular. When he writes to the Philippians. He's writing this as a warning to all forgiven sinners. To confess our envy to God and to others that we have afflicted. The others we have hurt or Possibly pushed out of the way to make way for ourselves. We need to confess that. We need to acknowledge that. Go with me to First Peter 1 to see a reminder of this. First Peter 1, 22. The Apostle Peter writes this. It says, "...having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart." Well, that's not going to happen. Listen, a pure heart, he's not just talking about your positional standing before God. He's talking about a heart that's been purified by God. A heart that's being cleansed by the truth about God's grace. He says, that's how you're going to love others and not exalt yourself. He says, since you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower fades But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this is the word. And this word is the good news that is preached to you. So, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And he tells you how to do that. He tells you to do that by going to the word of God. Going to the word to see what Christ, the word who became flesh, did to conquer envy for us. But we need to confess that we are envious of one another. We need to confess that we have kept others from possibly serving in certain areas because of our envious behavior. Again, Paul knows that most of our battles in the Christian life are not from rivals without, are they? I mean, how many battles do you do with Jehovah's Witness? Most of our battles with rivals are from within. The root of rivalry lives in our flesh. And it tries to rise up this nasty weed of jealousy and selfish ambition, so that they they would be exalted rather than Christ being exalted. So, so the response I think to rivalry in our heart is to acknowledge it is sin. Acknowledge it. It seems pretty simple, I know, but it just it begins here. We need to acknowledge. That envy is rooted in our flesh. Look what it says in Romans 7. There 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 is no like super spirituality. Let me just burst that bubble, all right? You, You don't get saved and all of a sudden, you know, walk on clouds. You get saved and you're still strapped in this flesh. And there is a spiritual battle to the day you're glorified and sent home to be with Christ. And if you don't acknowledge that there is a battle, you've already lost. But when you acknowledge that there is a battle in the flesh and that Christ can conquer it and has already conquered it by His grace, you can be set free from this affliction of the flesh and trust that God is going to work in spite of it. Look what it says in 7.15. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. But then go down to verse 22. But, or for, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. I I delight, my soul delights in the truth, in in the glorious truth about God and His nature. But, I see in my members, that is my flesh, I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, my soul, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And I love this, because Paul asks the question, and then Paul answers his own question. Oh yeah, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I, I myself, I myself serve the law of God in my mind, but my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Now, he says in verse verse 1 of chapter 8, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He says, look, I I recognize this battle. I recognize this struggle. I'm a wretched man. My flesh still pursues the things that it should not pursue, but my heart is longing to pursue the holiness of God. That battle is there. And Paul was honest about it in Romans 7. Even as an apostle, he didn't hide his struggles. He acknowledged his sins. And he acknowledged he needed the the gospel to uproot his envy, his, his sin in the flesh. The root of Paul's motives in his ministry then grew not out of self-exaltation, but God's exaltation. Look what it says in 2 Corinthians 4, 5, 5 through 7. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, Master. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake, For God, who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Paul says, Look, if if you look to my flesh, you're going to see weakness. You're going to see I am a jar of clay, I'm a cracked pot, I'm flawed. But God took this glorious message and poured it into a jar of clay. Not that I would be praised for proclaiming it, for teaching it. But that Jesus would be proclaimed. The surpassing glory would go back to God for the message I am proclaiming to you. Not to me. Not to me be the glory. To God be the glory. So when we come to Philippians, I think that's what he's wanting the Philippians to understand. as they acknowledge their sin, they also need to acknowledge what, what, is, what is really driving their love, what is really driving their hearts? What's driving you into ministry? Philippians 1:16. He says, "The, the, the root of what's driving their ministry shows up in their actions. The latter, do it out of agape. Praise God knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. He says the, the group that is doing this out of goodwill, that are they're serving out of goodwill, it's evidenced because they are willing to join up with me in the defense of the gospel. They know that defending the gospel is costly. Paul's in prison for defending the gospel. He is discerning that the evidence of their motives is seen in their actions. Agape is Action. It's love initiated. In other words, they're they're willing to embrace the Apostle Paul not only in their hearts but publicly and confess that they're following his teaching, proclaiming his message because of his great love for them, for bringing the gospel to them and for their great love for Christ who has saved them. He's he's saying their, their motives are expressed in their association with me, their defense of me, their love for me. He's saying it is, it is seen, it is discernible. And, and listen, our, our love, what we really love is discernible. What we really love is what we put our feet to, what we put our actions to, our hands to. If you love Jesus and you love the church, you're going to be actively serving the church out of love. Love for Christ and love for one another. It won't just be said love, it'll be acting love even if it costs you everything to do it, like we see here happening in Rome. But he says, likewise, the evidence of this weed and this root of envy is, is visible, it's discernible as we look at verse 17. He says, look, the, here's the, the, the revelation of the root of envy. The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition. He says, here's the root The root of those who are standing with me is love, agape, Christ like action that partners with me, labors with me, stands with me. But the root of envy is selfish ambition, self exaltation. This is the root of envy. He says, Their ministry is not sincerely given. He says, But thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Not sincerely means not pure. The motives weren't purely driven by a love for Jesus and a love for others. It's actually mixed in with a love for self. Now, that's very sad. But that's very real. Scripture does not not sugarcoat anything. We battle with this. Selfish ambition all the time. Husbands, you battle with it in your families. You want to be preeminent. Wives... That's the source of your struggle as well. Christ is to be preeminent in our marriage. He is to be first in all things that we do. But selfish ambition comes along and it's not satisfied with just self-exaltation. We also want to hurt those who could possibly be a threat to our self-exaltation. That's what's going on here in Philippians 1.17. Thinking through their selfish ambition they would afflict me in my prison imprisonment. These, these men... They're not satisfied with with being free and standing out in front. They want Paul to to writhe in pain, be galled by their freedom. But look at who's really free in this text. Paul's acknowledging their sin. He's acknowledging his own desire to be out there throughout the first chapter of Philippians, but he's also acknowledging that his main concern is that Jesus is being proclaimed. He's free. He's not shackled. He's not trapped by envy. In reality, the rivals were in chains and rubbed raw by envy. They could not find joy. In the midst of this rivalry, Paul is rejoicing. Not because of their sin, but because God triumphs over their sin. God will triumph over our sin as well. Paul discerns that their ministry and their motives and this would be across the board for anyone, they are rooted in a desire to exalt one of two things. You're either driven by a desire to exalt God or you're driven by a desire to exalt yourself. There's only two gods that men serve. One is the true and living God and the other one is fallen man, self. Motives that are rooted in a desire to exalt God will reveal themselves in Christ-exalting agape. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 13. Motives that are rooted in this desire to exalt God will exalt the love of Christ through our actions. In 13.1 it says, If I speak in the tongues of Men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong and a clanging symbol. So this is this is interesting. The Apostle Paul says, If I, the apostle, preach with wrong motives, motivated by self-exaltation, if I even do it really eloquently, even beautifully, even angelically, but if I don't have love, I am I am no better than a clanging pot. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, if I'm generous to a fault, but my motives are wrong, look what he says. If I even deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. See, it's not the external that God is looking at. It's the internal motive of the heart. And so he compares that with verse 4. He says, Love, though, however, is this. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. You know why? Why? god is love that describes jesus jesus is patient jesus is kind jesus does not envy or boast jesus was not arrogant on earth jesus was not rude jesus didn't insist on his own way but gave himself up for us see when we love like that from the heart the heart that reflects the love of christ because of the love of christ then god is exalted through our actions If we give our bodies for that reason, God is pleased. If we preach with these motives, God is honored and the church is edified. Paul wants us to discern our motives in ministry. Motives that are rooted in a desire to exalt God will look like that. They will look like God. They will look like God-like love. They will look like Christ exalting agape. But motives that are rooted in a desire to exalt man, well they will reveal themselves in selfishness, self-exaltation, selfish actions. Let me give you an example of that. In a church, in one of the Apostle John's epistles, 3 John, verse 9. The Apostle, Paul, or Apostle John here, rather, writes about a man who desired to exalt himself. And it was, it was revealed through his actions through his selfish ambition he was not satisfied with his own exaltation he wanted to bring others down with him look what it says in verse 9 i have written something to the church but diotrephes who is who likes rather who likes to put himself first he likes the preeminence does not acknowledge our authority so If I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. So, see, self exaltation doesn't just affect you. Well, look, Diotrephes is in the church, he's probably a leader, he may have been an elder. But he didn't like the threat from outside. He didn't like being, being possibly pushed aside. He didn't like not being in first place. And so his selfishness not only affected him, it affected the entire church. But God would correct that through the Apostle John, who's, by the way, the apostle of love, who comes here with a stick for Diotrephes and corrects him. Back in Philippians 1.17, I think Paul is simply just teaching us that selfish ambition can spring up within any church. I think this is a warning to all churches. Paul's also illustrating how to uproot envy through gospel-advancing humility. That's what we see in Philippians 1.18. A gospel-advancing response to rivals begins with this. Thirdly, Begins with answering rivalry with humility. That's what Paul reveals here. He says, these guys are doing this, in verse 17, out of wrong motives, out of selfish ambition. What then? What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Whether in deluded desires or in pure desires, Christ is proclaimed. The gospel is going forth. My testimony is being shamed. My name is being slandered. I am being accused of being a false teacher. I am being accused of being inadequate or a compromiser. That's why I'm in prison and I'm not out being blessed by God and receiving the praises of men publicly. Many times when Christians don't prosper and when Christians suffer, those, the, the word of faith people come along and say, well, God doesn't bless them anymore. God doesn't love them anymore. They must have done something wrong. And here Paul saying, God put me here. God placed me here so that these imperial guards would hear the gospel. God put me here so that those who are timid would be made bold. God put me here so that even my rivals would go out and do what God has ordained for me to do when I can't. Paul is rejoicing, not defending himself. Paul's rejoicing in God's providence even when his rivals seek to afflict him. And he does that because he knows that through his affliction... Christ is being lifted up. This this man is dying to self here in this prison. He's doing the very thing he is about to command us to do in chapter 2 of Philippians. Isn't it amazing how God works? The preacher becomes the illustration of the sermon he's about to preach. Consider others as more important than yourself. The rivals needed to be corrected. The rivals would eventually hear, about Paul's attitude toward their sin and how he rejoiced instead of writhed in their affliction. And I'm sure if they were believers, as I believe they are, they would have been affected by that. And they would have been repentant, I hope, and acknowledged their sin and discerned the root of their sin and answer Paul back with humility. I think what we see here is... Paul's faith in action. Paul is is humbly trusting in God's sovereign plan. Again, he doesn't need to defend himself. In verse 18, we can see that his confidence is in God's providence in every circumstance. He says, instead of defending himself, he says this What then? If, If they agape me, if they express love toward me, I will rejoice. Because that's evidence of God's saving grace in their life. I I am rejoicing because Christ is being proclaimed and God is honored by the motives of these men. It's evident that God has worked in their hearts and it is expressing itself in agape in my life. But he also says, What then? Not that they love me, but that they afflict me. What then if they afflict me? I I will rejoice. I will rejoice because... Christ is being proclaimed and God will triumph over their sin. God will work in spite of them. That doesn't mean God won't rebuke them. I believe that God will rebuke all those who belong to Him. Every son will be disciplined. But Paul says, the main issue is this. The main thing is this. Jesus and Him proclaimed accurately the gospel of Christ being lifted up and exalting God's grace. That's what Paul is concerned about. Paul knows that that God will preserve His witness. He knows that. He knows that God will preserve His witness in the world and sometimes He may use broken jars to do it with. He may fill those broken jars, those cracked and flawed jars with his glorious gospel, though their motives at times are wrong, yet God will triumph through those clay pots so that those those rivals won't be praised on the last day. Jesus will be praised for working and triumphing over their sin in sanctification in their lives. God doesn't want us to ignore that we have these cracks. He wants us to acknowledge these things and discern these things and turn from these things in humility. That's what we see being expressed here in this text. We should all learn from the people we probably relate to most in this text. We should all learn from the envious. And we should all also learn from the one who exalts Christ, which is Paul and his humility. I I can't even imagine this response coming out of me. I wish it would. But if I was being slandered and imprisoned and accused of, of all kinds of things, and I can't do the work that God's called me to do at the moment, I don't know that I would be rejoicing unless God had filled me with this great sense of humility and grace because of Christ. And trust that God will work even when we can't work. God will work even through our rivals so that His name would be proclaimed and exalted on the earth. Paul's answer to rivalry here in Philippians, his answer is real simple. It's Christ-exalting humility. Paul knows that the greatest rival that all of us face, the greatest rival and seeker of glory is the face we look at in the mirror every day. Paul knows this. And Paul also knows that it, it takes a Christ-like humility to respond to this. That means that it takes the revelation of Christ's victory over this enemy. You know, if I wasn't confident in what God promised in Philippians 1.6, I would be frightened if I was in prison. But because of this, I can respond to those who attack me because I know God is going to be exalted even through my difficulty. Look what it says in verse 6. And I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He will bring it to completion. He'll bring it to completion and he'll manifest his work of sanctification as we face trials and suffering and rivals, by giving us the heart of Christ. That's His desire for us. We see that in Philippians 2.1. Paul, Paul's joy wasn't in the fact that he was being persecuted. His joy wasn't in the fact that he was imprisoned. His joy was rooted in the fact that he was able to defend Christ's humbling work, Christ's God-exalting work. That's what made him happy while he's facing rivals that's what gave him joy that these men were doing the same they're defending god's work and in that he can turn to them in humility and say i rejoice because christ is proclaimed then he writes this in chapter 2 verse 1 So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Now, what's amazing to me is this. He's writing this with those rivals on his mind. He is not directly rebuking the rivals. But he's saying, here's how I'm going to respond to those who are rivals. I'm going to count them as more important than myself. I'm actually going to point to what they're doing right, not what they're doing wrong. And God in His grace will humble them, I believe. Have this mind, he says in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus expressed his humility toward his rivals by taking their place on the cross of Calvary. And Paul is saying we can can reflect this. When we face rivals. This is the source of his joy because through this, he says in verse 9, that God is praised. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul Paul's saying, look, if we consider others as more important than ourselves, we keep our eyes on the work of Christ. On the last day, every knee will bow and glorify our God who saved us. This is the root of Paul's humility and joy here. What's, what's the root of your joy this morning? If your joy as a believer is based on your labors, and your influence, and the praises of others, the rival in your flesh has already won. The affliction of envy will plague you daily. The affliction of envy will rob you of what Paul is expressing, which is pure joy. Knowing that God is working in spite of all other circumstances, that God's glorious gospel is going forth. And that's all that consumes his thoughts. The selfish men there in Rome were operating out of their flesh. Yet God used them in spite of themselves. But they had no joy they had no joy in their service christ exalting joy christ exalting joy abides in the heart of those who reflect the apostle paul here christ exalting joy abides in everyone who confesses the sin of envy and examines the motives of our ministry and humbly trust in god's provisions and his sovereignty god placed paul here and he placed these rivals at this time in his life so that Paul would not exalt himself, but rather exalt and praise Christ. Because he sees Jesus at work in spite of these circumstances. So just think about this this morning. If, if you're going through a struggle with selfishness, are you willing to acknowledge it and repent of it? Are you discerning the motives of your ministry this morning. Why are you are here this morning? I mean, why did you get up this morning and show up at this place? Was it so people could say, look, they're here today? Or are you here this morning, which I think you're here for this reason. You're here to hear the word of God, live the word of God, and share the word of God for the glory of God. Discern the motives that brings you here. Are they rooted in Christ-exalting agape or self-exalting actions are they driven by the humility of christ are your motives driven out of thankfulness for what christ has done are they driven to serve no matter what it costs us serve the church serve one another serve christ even if it means humbling ourselves taking the lower place and exalting others in the in the church every member is important in the body of Christ, there is not one part that is insignificant. Every part is necessary and ordained by God to bring him glory. It's his body. And selfishness tries to corrupt that. Envy tries to segregate that, separate that. God, God wants unity in his body, and it begins with acknowledging our sin. We need to confess that this morning and trust in God to wash us and bring about Christ-exalting humility in our service here as a church. Let's pray that he'll do that.